Hebrews chapter 2. Did I miss something? What? It's Hebrews 2. Whatever I said before, Hebrews 2. So if you want to follow along with me, you're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2. All right? Starting at verse 5, reading through verse 10. I know that your bulletin says 13, but I'm not getting that far. So Hebrews 2, 5 through 10. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We confess this morning that we are a people of your word who believe what you say to be true, the word that convicts us of our sin, a word that tells us about our Savior, a word that leads us to eternal life and transformation of life. We confess that we are a people of your word. So please turn our hearts to it this morning and give us ears to hear and hearts that are willing to be changed by it and to see our Savior as he is glorious and worthy of our praise. Please do it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The author of Hebrews, text that's in front of us, he quotes Psalm chapter 8. That's where this quotation comes from. And there is a remarkable observation that he makes when he looks at the truth that is in that psalm. And then he looks out at the world that he lives in, and he sees something different than what the psalm says. So he is comparing his experience lived in this world with the truth that he sees there. So there is a disconnect. What he sees in life doesn't match up with what God's Word says. And what he sees in the text is that man was made for glory and honor. He's made for glory and honor and to live in a world where he rules over everything. He's ruling. He has dominion. Everything is subjected to him. That was man's purpose in the garden, to have dominion over all things, that nothing would be left outside of his control to rule as king of the earth. That's what you and I have been created for. But he was not seeing that lived out in life. 
Truth is glory, honor, dominion over all, looks out at the world, sees, I don't see man ruling with glory and honor and dominion over all. So I asked this morning, is that what you see? Do you see man with everything in subjection to him? Is that your own personal experience, that you are crowned with glory and honor in all things, all things under your feet? your powers extending over all that was made. I think over the last couple of years, we saw that that clearly was not the case. Disease swept across the world, and what came with it? Panic, fear. It was pretty clear in that cultural moment that man was not ruling with glory and honor with all things under his feet. He was not subjecting everything. He was being subjected to. And all the people who tried to look like they knew how to handle it all proved that they did not know what they were doing. So ruling man subjecting man he did not give a good showing of himself which does not measure up to what we read here in psalm chapter 8 even more recently a hurricane swept across florida killing over a hundred people tens of thousands of people evacuating the area as the storm reshaped the coastline and destroyed the work of mankind to the tune of more than $50 billion. And so I ask you again, is that what it looks like for man to have dominion over all things? Was he ruling over the hurricane? So the writer of Hebrews, he took note of these things in his own time and place. He sees that man does not have that kind of dominion, and he wonders to himself what to make of it all. But then by faith, he sees that the answer to this dilemma, this disconnect that he is watching, he sees that the answer is found in the person of Jesus Christ. There is a glory that has been promised to man by God that has not yet been fulfilled on earth. There's a glory that has been promised to man by God that has not yet been fulfilled on earth. When King David wrote Psalm 8, he is in awe when he looks at the vastness of the universe. The stars in the sky, the galaxies that exist beyond the reach of our sight, Galaxies that we have been able in our day to see something of with telescopic technologies. We're able to reach far beyond what our normal eyes can see. And we should be in more awe than David was because we can see more than he did. All he could see was those bright stars. And looking at what he did, he said, I am amazed that all the things that are out there in the universe, of all the glorious things that you have made, God, that you think of us. What we are, we are small in comparison with all else. 
And you are mindful, meaning you think about us. You care for us. You know every detail about my life. And he is amazed. Has that ever occurred to you? That of all the things that God could be doing and have his heart set on, all the majestic things that he has formed with his word, that he formed you and knows you personally and cares for you. Have you ever thought to yourself something like David thinks of there when he says, "What? why would you be mindful of me? We see a summary of that in verse 8 where God has determined that of all the things that he has created, that the human beings will be at the pinnacle of it. And that mankind will rule over all that he has formed. We are his image bearers, his vice regents. We're to rule over the earth. We see that in verse 8. Look at verse 8. It says that God has put everything in subjection under his feet. He left nothing outside of his control. Nothing is left outside of man's control. That was God's original intent when he made mankind on the sixth day of creation, that everything would be under his dominion who named all the animals, who named everything. Adam did. He was there to rule. But we know what happened in the story, do we not? Adam's sin, the fall of all the world, creation is in disarray, man is corrupted. But here David, he writes this psalm long after the world is in that sin-stained condition. And he speaks of the reality of man having glory and honor with all things in subjection to him under his feet. So there's the confusion. And that's why we see what we do at the end of verse 8 here in Hebrews. At present, he says, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So he looks out at the world and says, I'm not seeing what's written in Psalm 8. You say, Lord, that everything is in subjection to man. He has dominion. I look out here, and I don't see that. I don't see that. And I don't think, brothers and sisters, that you do either. We don't see man ruling like the psalm says that he is. So how do we make sense of this? Verse 9. This is where it starts to make some sense. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Namely, who? First time he even says this name in this book so far. Jesus. That's who we see. We don't see man ruling on the throne. What do we see? We see him, namely Jesus 
He's the one who is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And so what this writer sees when he looks at Psalm 8, he sees the mission of Jesus Christ. He's saying that he was, like all of us, made for a little while lower than the angels. For a while, while he was here on earth, Jesus himself, the Son of God, creator of all the angels, he made them all. But for a period of time, he came here to the earth and was lower than them. How? How was he lower than the angels? In that he was made a man like you and me to live in a world of suffering. Because if you have dominion, if you're ruling over everything, everything, do you suffer? I mean, that doesn't make sense, does it? If you're the ruler, sovereign over all, there is nothing that puts you in subjection to it. Nothing has dominion over you. Nothing controls you. Nothing overshadows you. Nothing keeps you under its feet. So suffering implies the fact that, it, that you are under something, under the control or under the authority of something else. So not only is mankind as a whole suffering on earth in this fallen world, Jesus himself came to do the same. That is a position that is lower than the angels. If you know the story of Jesus, you know that when he came to earth, his mission was not to be exalted to the throne over mankind, ruling over the kingdoms of the earth. All things were clearly not in subjection to him when he came. If they were, don't you think that his brothers would have noticed? If they had a king in their home and everything was underneath his feet, don't you think his relatives would have seen that and said, Oh, he's the one. But they didn't see that. I think we, just in the story of Jesus, we would have anticipated that any king would have been born in a great palace. But you know that he wasn't. Why? Because the whole point of his coming was to identify with suffering mankind to be made for a little while lower than the angels. And so from his birth onward, Jesus experienced the hardship of life as a human being in a fallen world, and he seemed to be like everybody else except without sin. He came to experience life as a sufferer, like me and you, so that he could achieve the glory and honor of Psalm 8 for mankind. That song that we sang just a little while ago, I don't remember all the words, but did you feel the world is broken? We do. And is all creation groaning? It is. 
That's the world that Jesus entered into. To be made for a little while lower than the angels, to suffer in this world for us. So let me repeat what you see there on the screen. Jesus came to experience life as a sufferer like me and like you so that he could achieve the glory that is spoken of in Psalm 8, not just for himself, but for mankind. And that's what verse 10 makes clear. The result of Jesus' suffering in, is glory for many sons of God. Let me read verse 10 to you. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And so brothers and sisters, if we long for the glory that we see in Psalm 8, do you long for that? I mean, it really does sound too good to be true, does it not? That God has promised glory to you. That he would think of you and your lowly position. Think about yourself and the things that you deal with in your life, the things that you struggle with, the thoughts that you have, maybe thoughts of inferiority. Challenges abound everywhere for you. And yet God says that his promise for you, this lowly creature, is crowning you with glory and honor. <laughs> it's, I mean, really, it's like fairy tale stuff. But it's true. And the way that you and I, these lowly sufferers down here on earth, the way that we, will receive the glory of Psalm 8 is for Jesus, the founder of our salvation, to be made perfect himself through suffering and achieve glory for us. Because we're not going to achieve it for ourselves. Jesus came to do this for me and for you. Jesus came to make Psalm 8 true of you because right now it doesn't seem true does it that didn't seem true what glory for me you know what like i have a hard time just doing my job i have a hard time being a good dad and a good husband everything is hard for me right would you agree are things hard for you do you often fail at the things you attempt to do can't overcome temptations can't seem to overcome your sin and here we're told that we will rule everything. That nothing, he says, will be left outside of your control. And that seems too good to be true. And without Jesus, it would be. But through him, all these things are not just possible. They are guaranteed glory, glory. For yourself. And so the words of Psalm 8, 
When he's talking about mankind here, they would not be fulfilled unless the Son of God became a man and then he suffers, he's humiliated, he's shamed, and then he dies. Tasting, verse 9 says, tasting death for everyone. And that's not just taking a little sip of death. He didn't just, well, taste just a little bit. Jesus didn't just get a little grocery store aisle sampling of death. No, he drank the fullness of it all the way. He took the full brunt of death as a sinless man in the place of sinful men so that these sinners, talking about you and me, undeserving as we are, could be transformed, we're told, into sons of glory. Man. You know what my prayer was this morning and last night? Like, this is heavy stuff. That's what this man is talking about, writing about in Hebrews chapter 8. Looking back at Psalm 8, this is heavy stuff, and my heart, can, my heart can only scratch at it. Just get a little bit of it. But my prayer was is that the Spirit of God would give us the ability this morning to be in awe of what Jesus Christ has done for us. That this right here is promised for you. Can't hardly imagine it sitting there in your chair this morning. Don't know what that sounds like to your ears. That this promise written of thousands of years ago about mankind is for you through Jesus Christ. That he's won it. So that where he is right now in splendor and honor and glory, namely Jesus, he says, we see him. He's the one who has it. He's there sitting on his throne, that he has won that glory, not just for himself, but for many sons and daughters to share in it with him. It's tremendous. I want you to see the importance of three phrases that are used in verse 10. Three phrases. The first is, it was fitting. See that right there at the very beginning of verse 10? For it was fitting. What does it mean when something is fitting? We know that what it means like with clothing, right? It fits us. Fits on our bodies. It suits us. It's appropriate. It's right. It's proper. And so what he's saying here is that it was suitable, it was suitable that God would make Jesus perfect through suffering. It was fitting. It seemed right. It was proper. It fit God's ways. That glory, the heights of glory, the highest of heights, it was fitting that God would do it through humiliation. It was fitting that this particular plan, glory for many sons, first through his son, would come through suffering. I would say that all of you in this room know someone who is quirky. Who is that person in your mind? And I'm going to say that some of you are thinking about people who are actually in this room. Because there's some quirky people here. 
quirky someone who just does things in his or her own way. You know somebody like that. And when you hear the next quirky thing that they do, you just chuckle and say to yourself, well, that was fitting. Right? That's something like we see going on here. The author takes a step back and sees the ways that God has done things in the past. He knows the scriptures. He knows how God has worked. He seems to always do what is unexpected. And then he looks at this and what God has done through Jesus. He sees him sending his son into the world. He conquers and brings glory to many by how? With a massive army, right? Now he does it by death. What? Not by sheer strength. I'm sure the Lord could have figured out a way to save in that way if he had wanted to, but he didn't want to because it was fitting that our God chose to demonstrate his power and his, his wisdom by weakness. Victory by humiliation. Strength through shame. God's Savior and the kind of God that he is his Savior is one who conquers by his own suffering and death. And so we might say, who would design such a thing? Who would have such a plan in his mind to come up with this? Only the beautiful mind of God. A God who loves irony. A God who delights in surprise. A God who delights to make foolish the wisdom of the world. He does that again and again. And so, of course, he says, it was fitting that God would do it like this. The second phrase is the founder of our salvation. The founder of our salvation. You're looking at your Bible, and maybe you've got a different translation, and different ones say different things. They substitute all sorts of words here to try to best communicate what is said. What's, what, what is he trying to get at here when he says the founder of our salvation? I saw captain of our salvation. I read that there's one translation that calls him the leader. Others the author or the source or the originator of our salvation. But the one that it seems to me best encapsulates the truth that's being communicated here is the word pioneer. Maybe your translation says that. There are some out there that do. The pioneer. The NIV uses that word. What is a pioneer? What does a pioneer do? So he's, he's not just the founder He's not just an author or an originator or a source. So he's not just the first, though he is, right? He's not just the first. What is his intent when he goes out first and does something? He, he blazes that trail, but he does so so that others can follow behind him. And so Jesus, our pioneer... 
he tasted death as a man for men so that many could follow behind him to glory. Isn't that good? I read a short bio recently on Ponce de Leon, the Spanish explorer who came to the New World supposedly to look for the fountain of youth. I don't know if that's what he was really looking for, but that's how the story goes 500 years later. And so imagine to yourself that De Leon found the fountain. He would always be remembered, not just for the guy as the guy that looked for it. He would always be remembered as the man who blazed the trail to immortality and glory for anybody who would come along behind him. But guess what? De Leon was already 1,500 years too late. There was a pioneer who had already done that, traveled to immortality and glory, one that made it possible for us to follow him where he is. And so Jesus is our pioneer. He suffered here on earth. We're told tasting death for all. He entered the glories of heaven as a priest and a king, preparing the way for those he loves to follow behind him. To do what? to share in the glory that he has already won. The last phrase. Perfect through suffering. So here's the whole thing again. It was fitting, you know, that the plan of God was to bring many sons to glory by making the pioneer of salvation perfect through suffering. What does that mean when we're talking about Jesus? Because we'll say to ourselves, will we not? Well, Jesus was already perfect before he suffered, right? Was there a time when Jesus was not perfect and suffering made him so? Well, we certainly confess that Jesus has never been imperfect or flawed in any way, certainly never sinful. So what does this mean? You remember a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at chapter 1, verse 3, that we can see how Jesus has been given an honor and exaltation in heaven by what he has done here on earth. And so he achieved something while he was here, and he received glory and exaltation when he returned to heaven. So by becoming a man, coming down here and suffering like he did, obedience to the Father in all of his hardships and all of the temptations, all of the physical pains, all the way to death, by doing all of that, Jesus won for himself a kind of glory that he did not have before. I think the word perfect right here is pregnant with all of that in it. So he's not saying that Jesus was imperfect in some way or flawed in some way. It's more like complete, everything accomplished, finished. His exaltation has been won. How? Through suffering. Jesus had never suffered before. 
The eternal Son of God had never been a man before. He had never been made lower than the angels before. He had never experienced hurts and pains and death. And by doing all of that, he achieved a glory that he had never had, a kind of glory, when he was exalted to the throne. So he was made lower than the angels for a period of time so that he could achieve a perfection through that suffering. So brothers and sisters, I would ask this morning, how can we not be in awe of Jesus if we are truly grabbing hold of what is being said in this passage? Will you not worship him? Will you not say, man, he is worthy? Will you not say that in your heart right now? Or even with your mouth? We confess that Jesus is worthy of our praise for what he has done for us. He was willing to be made lower than his creation, lower than the angels, to subject himself to suffering so that he could bring many sons and daughters in this room to glory where he is. Man. One last thing before we wrap this up. We're told that Jesus is the pioneer of salvation, right? That he shows us our new home, new way to home, to glory. The glory of Psalm 8 is for us. That's for me. That's a promise to me, given to me in Jesus, because he's won it for us. But we don't fully have that in our grasp yet, do we? When you walk out of this room thinking these thoughts, you will not go out there and subject the entire world to yourself with a wave of the hand. You will not be ruling like is said here. What do you have here in this life? We are experiencing life lived a little lower than the angels. We experience life in a fallen world. We experience suffering before we receive glory. The cross surely comes before the crown. And Jesus has shown us the way. And he promises to be with us while we are on the hard road behind him. My point is, is that if Jesus is the pioneer of our glory and it went through suffering, what do you think will happen with you? That you're on the hard road of suffering as well. And I must admit, when I look out at the people who are here this morning, I don't know everything that every person is experiencing. But I can look out there and I see faces and I know where you are. 
And I know something of what you have experienced and that you are suffering. And there has to be something that you hold on to while you are there. And I'm not talking about tricking your mind. I'm not talking about self-esteem. That's all trash. You've got to have something real that you hold on to on this hard road. And it is that Jesus Christ has come to carry you home, and he will do it. This is a real promise for you. He has won it for you. And he calls you to obedience and perseverance and faith. Even when your eyes cannot see glory yet, you see it with him. There are sufferers in this room. But Jesus is with you. And he will, we are told, bring many sons to glory. So I would ask that you hold very tightly to him. There is no other hope for you. So brother and sisters, fellow travelers, look to Jesus, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, and yet he accomplished this so it could be true of you that you will have glory. Oh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we trust our hearts into your care to see the beauty that is here. Jesus is glorious, and he was willing to come and identify with sufferers here on earth. This should astound us. He did that for me. That we look at Psalm 8 and see the promise that is here, that there will come a day when we're not sitting in this room, we're not sitting in this world of sin and shame and humiliation and hurt and cancer and disease and hurricane. Victory has been won by Christ for us and for this world. May we hold tightly to it right now and see him sitting on his knowing that there is a place with him for me. Leave us in awe this morning. Leave us in worship that you would think of us, that you would be mindful of us in this way, that when Jesus went to the cross and endured the shame, he was thinking of this, and it gave him joy. We look to you. We love you. We ask God for heart transformation in this room that people, maybe even for the first time this morning, would look to Christ and see his glory and be saved. Do this work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time.